This episode is sponsored by Panacea Financial, a nationwide digital bank built for doctors by doctors. Panacea offers loans just for physicians and medical students with low rates, free checking, and no ATM fees nationwide, and 24-7 live customer service. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to open your account and join a bank built with you in mind. Panacea Financial is a division of Premise member FDIC. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, welcome back to the Curbsiders. We're here. We did it. <laughs> I like that you welcome me back to the program. Thanks, Wado. It's yeah, this is. I feel a little weird because we have some celebrities watching us do this part right now. Yeah. Uh, Stuart's not here, obviously, because no one's interrupted yet. But this is the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Wado here with my my good friend. I could say maybe even one of my best friends, Dr. Oh. Paul Williams. Well, that's awfully nice. And tonight on the show, we have the CP Solvers. And Paul, before I start to introduce them, how about you tell people, what is it we generally do on the show? Then tell them what we'll be doing tonight. Sure. Happy to, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Tonight, a little bit of a different format. We have everyone's two favorite diagnostic whiz kids. We have Ravi Jiha and Reza Manesh, the CP Problem Solvers. Did I have that right? That's too many Ps, isn't it? I think, you, I think you added a P in there. Yeah, there's a lot we of can, I'm sure we can think of something. Yeah. yeah. But we'll be going through a, a case and they're going to teach us how to think because I don't think good sometimes. So it'll be helpful to actually have someone do clinical reasoning as opposed to my shotgun approach to diagnostics. So that's the general idea. Why don't you tell us more? Thank you, Paul. Our guests tonight are Dr. Reza Manesh. He's been on the show, I believe, three times. He's killed it on the show. You all love him. You know him from the clinical problem solvers or at CP Solvers. He is Dr. RxEDU on Twitter. And his best friend and <laughs> nope. partner in crime is Dr. <laughs> Robbie Jiha. Yeah. And Robbie, what's your Twitter handle? Say it for the audience here. Oh, it's at, at Robbie M. Jiha. But, um, a million dollars to the person who guesses that and spells that correctly. It's R-A-P-I-H-M-G-E-H-A. So we will put that in the show description. If you haven't checked these guys out, just a very quick backstory. Like a couple years ago, Reza was on our show. We had a great time. And he's like, hey, I think I might start my own podcast. Three weeks later, he has a fantastic <laughs> website. He has a podcast. Maybe four weeks later, he has a fantastic app. Uh, these guys are insane. They now have like a hundred people that work for them, uh, on the podcast. They're all super smart and talented. So definitely check out clinical problem solvers, CP solvers. If you don't know who they are, you'll see them demonstrate their stuff tonight. I think we have to get into the case here. Uh, Ooh, Matt, can I just yeah. make one last comment, one last sure. interjection, then I promise to follow the protocol. I wanted to highlight a book that I'm reading right now sure. that I think your audience will truly enjoy. And it's by none other than Dr. Aaron Berkowitz, who many know as the person who's ending neurophobia. Aaron taught me an approach to foot drop, and that tells you a lot about how smart he is. But his book is titled One by One by One, 
And in this book, he describes his experience in Haiti where he's a teacher and a neurologist, and he meets a patient who's 23 years old with the largest brain tumor he's ever seen. And so the book is about how he goes through so much to get this patient to the U.S. I don't want to spoil it for the audience, but I highly recommend that you read it because Aaron is a gem of a human being, and this book is inspirational, one by one by one. All right. So, Paul, did you want to read uh, the first the first bit of the case here? Sure. So we uh, we have the case broken up into aliquots, um, and I wonder. It's, I think we can probably even break it up further and just sort of give pieces of aliquot number one, it's, I think it sounds like, because I think we'll be able to generate differential relatively quickly for this patient. So okay. let's talk about our patient. She is a 70-year-old woman. She has a history of diabetes who's presenting to the emergency department after a fall, and she reports that the fall occurred attempting to stand up, and she did not sustain any injuries. Additionally, she reports progressive bilateral lower extremity weakness for the past three months. She states it is most prominent when she's standing from a chair and has now required her to use a cane, something she has never needed before. So I feel like maybe this might be a good place to stop and sort of and see kind of where your heads are at. And we can sort of certainly give you more in information, even though we're not really done with this first aliquot yet. There's still more to, to come. But I feel like just initially thoughts about um, this progressive lower extremity weakness, I feel like has to give you a differential. You, you For me, it's like three things. But for you all, probably like um, <laughs> 30 or 40. So I, I'm anxious to hear how you're starting to think about this. Um, I'll tell you, as, a, as a, a provider who works in the emergency room, we often see patients who fall. And I'll, I'll reflect on that dimension of the case and then leave the uh, more specific um, uh, data that we got from Reza to add on to. And, you know, falls is, it falls is a fascinating problem because we spend so much time practicing how to walk. In fact, for a whole year of our existence, our entire focus is on learning how to walk. And the truth is it takes a lot. It takes a lot for somebody to fall. There's a lot of unlearning that has to happen for somebody to lose their ability to maintain their balance. And if you think about it simplistically, the entire neuraxis is involved in us being able to maintain an upright posture. And the easiest way to knock out the entire neuraxis is to lose perfusion to it. So the key question when somebody is falling is often we're trying to establish, was there a history of loss of consciousness? And do we need to move away from the neuroaxis towards the cardiovascular axis with, syn with syncope? But here, um, you know, the history is often enough to, uh, to make a confident assessment in that. But often, we try to support that history with an EKG or a, blood, or a point of care um, glucose. But here, I think a good operating assumption, given the subsequent data, is that this patient has some sort of neurological injury to cause them to fall. And that's where you have to, to kind of take the neurological axis and break it into three parts. Is there a deficiency in the data coming into the central nervous system to analyze it? So this is where the peripheral neuropathy, sensory ataxia comes in. Is there a difficulty in analyzing the data that's coming into the brain, either because of a cortical issue or a cerebellar issue? Or is there a deficit in the motor output that goes out um, to the motor system to coordinate that? The truth is that a lot of people have lesions elsewhere. So if we take our classical patients who's, who's an old, older adult who might have some Parkinsonism, who might have some idiopathic neuropathy, who might have vision issues, vestibular issues, medication effects. So most people who fall have a multi-pronged um, a, a reason to multiple lesions along the sensory axis, the brain axis, and the motor axis. And I encourage you to keep track of all three of those because often when somebody is falling, there's multiple things going on, compromising their long-standing practice and ability to walk. But here we have more specific data. We don't just have a patient who's falling. We have um, data to work with. So I'll pass the mic uh, to Reza to reflect on that. Robbie, I think that's a terrific start um, to this case. And really, what we're trying to solve here is bilateral lower extremity weakness. 
As Robbie mentioned, the first step is to determine whether we're dealing with objective weakness as opposed to subjective weakness. I would encourage the audience to go download our thought train on weakness by none other than Kara Lau, who's a third-year medical student at UCSF. This thought train takes you through the approach to weakness. So in the clinic, in the primary care clinic, usually weakness is because someone is feeling fatigued. It could be from heart failure. It could be from anemia. It could be from COPD. It can be from depression. However, Paul said something very specific here, that this patient is using a cane, is having difficulty standing. This is zooming us into true weakness, meaning a true decrease in motor power. So Robbie was already alluding to this, but you want to try to localize the lesion along the neuroanatomical axis. Brain, spinal cord, peripheral nerve, junction, muscle. What can help us here is that it seems like she's having bilateral lower extremity weakness. And I should even step back further. It's funny that we even spoke about Aaron Perkowitz because he came up with an equation for the neurologic DDX, which is what? Localize the lesion, then incorporate the time course to prioritize the differential diagnosis. So really the next steps, and um, we're going to get more information, is going to be a physical exam, but i just like to highlight a few things that we'll be looking for in the physical exam. We want to know, is this weakness truly symmetrical or not? Because if it's bilateral lower extremity weakness, the lesion can still be at the brain, at the spinal cord, at the cauda equina, the peripheral nerves, or even the muscle. So that's going to be very important. The other thing that's going to be important, Paul, is going to be the reflexes. So usually with upper motor neuron lesions, meaning the brain and the spinal cord, the patient is hyperreflexic. You have to be cautious there because in the acute setting, they may be hyporeflexic. So we will look for upper motor neuron signs like upgoing toes, clonus, hyperreflexia, spasticity, but there's another very important clue that's going to be on history. Is there bowel or bladder symptom? This is going to be key because Guillain-Barre, for example, Guillain-Barre syndrome, acute inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculopathy, does not have bowel or bladder symptoms. But cauda equina, spinal cord brain, has bowel and bladder symptoms. Brain, bladder, may have bladder symptoms, but you'll also see cognitive changes. So to summarize, I think additional history about bowel and bladder symptoms is going to be of paramount importance. We know we're dealing with the subacute process. It's three months, so it's not a stroke. It's not sudden in onset. It's subacute. The tempo is key. And then whether the patient's hyporeflexic, hyperreflexic might allow us to make further progress on localizing the lesion. Once we localize, we incorporate the time course to prioritize the DDX. Amazing. I do want to, all the, the medical stuff I mostly understood because you're, you're crystal clear in terms of the way that you explain things. Could you tell me what a thought train is? Because what, let's pretend for a second I'm unfamiliar <laughs> with that concept. So I didn't want to interrupt because you were on a roll. But if you can go back and at least explain what the idea behind a thought train is, then we can certainly proceed more about the case itself. Paul, I want you to always interrupt me. If one person should be interrupted, it's me because I interject <laughs> all the time. So just say interjection and just interrupt me. But I'm going to pass the mic to Robbie because this is um, also part of uh, sort of Robbie's, um, you know, coaching and effort. So Robbie, please take it away, my friend. 
You know, so like the thought train is 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 basically a, the the concept is to dynamically walk somebody through the actual schema. Like we just like I, what I just did. I'll just talk about myself. I just listed falls and I gave you an approach to falls. But what a thought train does is it puts you in the land of falls and tells you exactly what to do next and how that guides your differential diagnosis. So what Kara has done is she's taken up taken a schema of falls or whatever and made it live through the actual clinical case. So if you check it out, you'll see like if somebody's falling, do this, do this, do this. And that's what um, a thought train does um, in addition to um, our regular schema. Great. Thank you for that. So let's, let's talk more about our patient who is going nameless, but she will tell you for the past month, she has additionally noted arm weakness, which is most prominent when shaving or brushing her teeth. So we had what sounds like proximal bilateral lower extremity weakness, necessitating use of a cane. And now that's been going over the past three months and now more acutely, but still over the course of four weeks or so, she's now had arm weakness, which she's noticing with things like brushing her teeth. So other symptoms include aching or cramping pain in her muscles and recent voice changes described as a raspy voice. She has had a 20 to 30 pound weight loss unintentionally over the past year. And then finally, uh, talking about her medications, the only ones that she takes include metformin and a multivitamin. She, I love this detail. She lives in the Central Valley of California where she works in agriculture. And she has a 40-pack year history of tobacco use but has recently quit. She denies alcohol or other substance use. And thus ends the reading from Aliquot 1. This is coccidiomycosis and toll proven otherwise. <laughs> Matt, we're not going to make the same I mistake remember, twice. Reza, we can't <laughs> miss it. <laughs> Listen, since I just spoke for like 10 minutes, I'm going to pass the mic to Robbie to tackle this Aliquot. Well, why don't, uh, I'll take it as far as I can, and I would love your additional input. You know, I think that the data that we got uh, really helps us focus in on the syndrome. At, at first, we were uh, prioritizing the legs, and the two things we learned in addition to that uh, piece of information is that the arms are involved, and it appears that the distribution of the weakness is proximal in nature. So um, let's tackle the first one first. So what, is, what does the arm involvement tell us? The arm involvement tells us that the, the morbid hypothesis that we were probably initially entertaining, which is a myelopathy is much less likely to involve just the thoracic and lumbar cord. So as soon as the arms are involved, you're in tricky territory because now you have to think about a diffuse brain process, a cervical spine process, or a diffuse nerve process, or a diffuse muscle process. And your initial localization of saying, no matter what, I cannot miss a cord lesion in somebody presenting with a bilateral lower extremity weakness, becomes a much weaker hypothesis. But you have to be careful. Let's entertain the hypothesis that there is actually a lesion in the lumbar, lumbar spine and this patient has bilateral lower extremity uh, weakness. And patients, for example, with an epidural abscess tend to have multifocal epidural abscesses. So could there be a lesion in the lumbar spine still along with a cervical cord lesion? Now, why am I giving this example? I'm giving this example that often the neurological exercise is trying to find the most elegant solution to a problem. Um, and the most elegant solution assumes one lesion, but you have to step back and recognize that you're making that assumption. But if we are, if we make that assumption, knowing that it's not, it's a, it's one that's not foolproof, the lesion now either exists at the cervical cord or above, or is actually more diffuse. It exists in every single nerve and exists in every single muscle. Now, of all those hypotheses, that's where the proximal nature of the weakness helps us. The proximal nature prioritizes a myopathy, um, but it is not. Uh, other diseases can fool you and present as proximal weakness. ALS can notoriously initially present like inclusion body myositis, which is a myopathy. Some plexopathies, which patients with diabetes are at risk for, can also present with proximal muscle weakness. So what did we just learn? Just to keep it brief, we learned that now the entire neuraxis is at play, but the proximal weakness prioritizes a myopathy, and the fact that those muscles ache also adds yeah. 
five or 10 cents to that hypothesis. Now, where do you go from here? You go from here by examining the patient and getting a CK. And if that exam reinforces this hypothesis, we'll continue on the thought train of myopathy. But if we get other data to say, hey, you know what? Should we entertain ALS? Hey, should we entertain a plexopathy? Uh, that might pivot our initial hypothesis. Also should track that um, there are there seems to be upper airway or pharyngeal symptoms associated with this, which again could map onto any lesion in the neuraxis, including a myopathy, and that the background uh, of diabetes lacks associated hyperlipidemia. Because one thing you want to make sure is is the patient somehow exposed to a statin, which would be a very simple way to explain a myopathy. So there's a lot of open threads here, but. We have a, an upper middle-aged patient who presents with subacute proximal weakness affecting essentially all four extremities, and localization is diffuse, but the notable absence is anything referable to the brain. I think we're in the muscle, but an exam and a CK would really, really help us um, uh, make much more progress. And the address? Robbie, that, that was absolutely brilliant. And um, I actually wasn't even tracking the patient's history of diabetes, which may, may be quite relevant. The other thing to consider here is just the weight loss. So this patient has had 20 to 30 pounds of weight loss. When you're dealing with weight loss, it can either be inflammatory or non-inflammatory. That reminds me of Dr. Harry Hollander again, where he said, anything in medicine can be of one of two things, either infectious or non-infectious. This applies to weight loss as, as well. So inflammatory causes of weight loss include infections, malignancy, autoimmune processes. Non-inflammatory causes... You have to entertain here why, because she's having arm weakness. So I want everyone in the audience to think, when you take food, you have to first grab the food, you have to put it in your mouth, you have to chew the food, you have to be able to swallow the food. So could this muscle also be involving her ability to swallow? Then you have to be able to absorb the food from the GI tract. So you can have a lesion at any one of those locations that can lead to decreased food intake leading to weight loss. The reason I'm making this point is typically when we say weight loss of this magnitude, we start thinking about inflammation, which would significantly shift our frame of a myopathy, meaning an inflammatory myopathy. But here, I can't settle on that. And in addition to the excellent labs that Robbie requested, we'll be tracking what is the white blood cell count? What is the platelet count? What's the albumin? What's the ferritin? Other markers of inflammation like the ESR and CRP, because that's going to be an important frame for the patient, inflammatory or non-inflammatory. Let me ask this before we give you more information. So yeah, we, we've mentioned the patient's background diabetes a couple of times. It sounds like we're, I mean, we're not solidly in any territory, but at least leaning sort of in myopathy land. Can you help me make some connections between the endocrine part and and the myopathy part, are there other things that we should be thinking about there before we sort of move forward just so they can help focus our questions? Yeah, for sure. You know, the, the overlap between diabetes and neurological syndromes is extensive. You know, we thought, think about patients with diabetes have a high risk of stroke. We think about patients getting hypoglycemia from insulin-mediated processes. And, you know, that stretches from common things like that in the central nervous system to common things in the peripheral nervous system with a distal uh, polyneuropathy that's often seen with diabetes. But the range of overlap between diabetes and neuro extends to super esoteria. I mean, there's things like diabetic myonecrosis, statin-induced autoimmune necrotizing myopathy. And so if I were to narrow the overlap between diabetes and muscle, uh, because the diabetes plus neuro is so long, probably I think the base rate would tell you a statin-induced myopathy, which can be statin-induced, but then there's a statin-induced autoimmune necrotizing myopathy. Um, and then um, there's this condition called diabetic myonecrosis, which is essentially infarction of the muscle from diabetes. 
But if you venture from that world out to like endocrinopathy and muscle, you make a, you get a couple of hits. There's acromegaly and hypothyroidism, which are variably associated with diabetes. But the truth is, when you hear diabetes and neuro, you're probably jumping to a peripheral neuropathy. And all that I would take away if you're beginning to understand this world is diabetes plus neuro extensive. And I would go to a resource to look it up. Myopathy plus diabetes is probably a statin, but there's some less common things too. Paul, you want to go on to the the next piece of the case? Uh, Sure. Okay. All right. So we're going to start to give you some exam data. So this is aliquot number two, um, just because it's fun to say aliquot. On exam, the patient's vital signs are a temp of 36.8 degrees, uh, and this is Celsius, not Fahrenheit. Uh, Pulse of 67, blood pressure 150 over 92, and O2 set 95% on room air. She is well-appearing in no acute distress. The cardiopulmonary and abdominal examinations were unremarkable, and the skin exam was without any rashes. Do we get a neurologic example? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, what, that was enough to make the case for you? <laughs> that, that's a, that's, that ends our case. Give us a diagnosis. Um, no, for the neuro exam, I will give you the whole... Is there anything specific that you're looking for? We'll just give you the whole thing. So she is alert and oriented times three with fluent speech. She has intact attention and normal comprehension. In terms of the cranial nerve exam, the visual yields are full. Extraocular movements are intact. There is mild bifacial weakness and bilateral ptosis. The tongue is midline. The palate is symmetric with intact shoulder shrug. The motor exam, there is no pronator drift. Finger and toe taps were fast. Four plus out of five strength bilaterally in the deltoids and three out of five strength bilaterally in the iliopsoas. The motor exam was otherwise unremarkable. Reflexes were traced to absent throughout. In terms of the sensory exam, diminished pinprick and vibratory sense at the distal lower extremities. In terms of coordination, intact finger to nose, intact heel to shin. And the patient is able to stand with assistance and walk with a walker. The gait is not broad-based. So that is the whole kit and caboodle in terms of the neuro exam. And we, we have some labs, so I feel like this is a good place to... Well, actually, I can just tell you the labs now. The basic labs, including a chem panel, liver function test, and a CBC were unremarkable. So let's give you that too. And then thus ends uh, the readings from Aliquot number two. Prof Rez, take us <laughs> down the neuroaxis, please. Let's go down the neuroaxis together, Robbie John. So re- remember, when we're approaching the neuro exam, we were going to assess for weakness, for objective weakness. Here we found it, right, in the proximal muscles as we expected. What was a bit unexpected is the ptosis. And I want to applaud the clinicians who were able to um, detect bilateral ptosis because you can easily be fooled if both eyes are involved. And bilateral facial muscle weakness. So the motor strength is one part of the neuro exam. The reflexes was critical for us, right? That was a second part of the, the neuro exam. And then the lack of any sensory deficits is also important. So where is the lesion? Is it at the brain? I doubt it. I doubt it. No upper motor neuron signs. And with this type of symmetrical involvement, um, it's, it's not in the brain. Is it in the spinal cord? You remember, Robbie said we have to worry for a cervical myelopathy. Well, now we have brainstem involvement. I can probably tell you confidently this is not in the spinal cord. And Robbie, please interject whenever you see me go in the wrong direction. So now the peripheral nerves, the neuromuscular junction, and the muscle itself. Let's start with the muscle itself. Remember, when you have a myopathy, weakness of the muscle, the reflexes are intact. So the patient shouldn't be hyporeflexic, 
unless the myopathy is so advanced that the muscle can't contract anymore when you elicit the reflex. This is not the case here. So we're not dealing with the muscle, we're not dealing with the spinal cord, we're not dealing with the brain. Are we dealing with the peripheral nerve or the neuromuscular junction? Now, Robbie has one of the most amazing approaches to neuromuscular junction disorders. So I'm going to leave that for Robbie to tackle. When you thought that you could either say neuromuscular or not, Robbie jumps into presynaptic, synaptic, and postsynaptic. But I'll I'll leave that for him because it blew my mind the first time he taught me that. Could this be the peripheral nerve? Could this be the Miller-Fisher variant? of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Now, these patients typically have ophthalmoplegia. They may have ptosis, and it sort of can happen in a descending pattern, the motor weakness. They can have hyporeflexia. So it's the triad of, I believe, ataxia, hyporeflexia, and ophthalmoplegia should make you think about this variant. But you know, the, the sensory, again, the sensory system is totally intact here, no complaints whatsoever. So I just, you know, I, I have that in the back and in of terms my... Of time, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but since you, you gave me the invitation, in terms of time course, <laughs> that probably doesn't make a lot of sense either, right? If this is three months of history, the uh, Guillain-Barre variant would seem very unusual, I would think, or am I mistaken about that? Paul, not only are you right, but that's when someone assists you in a CPS. Thank you. I agree 100%. Because if this was a demyelinating condition, it would have to be the chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculopathy. But you're absolutely right, Paul. And this would be even a rare presentation of the Miller-Fisher variant. So let's move on to the neuromuscular junction. And that there, I'm going to pass the mic to Robbie to comment on that and maybe anything else that I, I probably missed. Well, you, uh, uh, folks, anyone who's listening, you're like, how could he miss anything? He's a diagnostic guru. Uh, you know, um, so uh, to explain the neuromuscular junction, I think we have to walk back and anchor ourselves in two parts of this exam. This exam is very confusing. So if you're trying to explain it very simply, it is going to throw you off. Let's just let's just summarize it. And Paul, Paul, please correct me if I'm wrong. We got a very strong proximal muscle dimension with the arms and legs. Fair? And then to layer onto that, we got some things we don't usually associate with myopathy. We got ptosis and bifacial weakness. Now, if you if you practice myopathy, you're like, I don't, I've never seen ptosis and bifacial weakness with myopathy. So let's keep that. And then you got hyporeflexia, so bunted reflexes. You're like, wait, what? Myopathy shouldn't come with a low reflex. Like it's very, very unusual, unless it's very advanced. So how do you reconcile that? You reconcile that by marrying the muscle and the nerve. So neuromuscular junctions are, neuromuscular junctions, essentially the connection between the nerve and the muscle. There's three localizations which are important to keep track of if you're if you're um, going to be the neurologist who needs to see this patient, but certainly if you're a general internist, this is something to, to file in your mind. If you see a disorder that has features of nerve and features of muscles, think NMJ. That's the takeaway. But the, if you zoom in on that, you're like, there's... The lesion is actually on the nerve side of the neuromuscular junction. The lesion can be on the muscle side of the neuromuscular junction, or the lesion can be in the middle. Now, in the middle is super rare. You'll never see it in the United States. It's organophosphate toxicity. But what can the lesion be on the muscle side that is a postsynaptic NMJ disorder? That's myasthenia gravis. On the presynaptic side, there are two dimensions. The more common dimension is Lambert-Eaton syndrome, which presents usually as a perineoplastic syndrome with proximal muscle weakness, features of profound hyporeflexia, and actually sensory issues and autonomic issues. The other um, very scary presynaptic neuromuscular disease is uh, a toxin disease. On the West Coast, it's tick paralysis, and everywhere, it's botulism. So the takeaway 
is to study the uh, neuromuscular junction when you have features of nerve and muscle because the neuromuscular junction overlaps. And I think here, as Reza is alluding to, there's a really good case uh, for neuromuscular junction disorder here because of the mix of proximal and dropped reflexes. Um, when you, whenever you hear ptosis, you have to think myasthenia. That should be a reflex association, especially ptosis with a spared pupil. Now, ptosis usually comes up with a messed up pupil in some way, shape, or form if it's a nerve issue, but ptosis plus spared pupil, you got to zero on myasthenia gravis. Um, so the NMJ here is in, is in the hot seat for the blame, and I think we have to study the nerve and the muscle, and if we make no progress on those two things, that flame gets even warmer on the neuromuscular junction, which, by the way, will make myasthenia worse, which is the whole point of the ice pack test. But I rambled on long I enough. was just going to say ice pack. <laughs> no, amazing, because I was going to remind you, because there's that beautiful distractor early on. I'm not, maybe not a distractor. I don't want to ruin the case, but this is the patient. I'll remind you that lived in the Central Valley of California where she works in agriculture. I'm like, those... Whoever wrote this is throwing organophosphates yeah, at me. It makes me very angry. <laughs> yeah, so I was, I was excited to hear you bring that up. That's that's great. Well, but I think Rez, Rez is a great he, – he teaches us the ice pack test. I think that's such a really important thing if we have 10 seconds to plug it because I think it, it actually would be something you might consider doing in the ER taking care of this patient. Let's hear it. So essentially, and you, you take an ice pack and you put it on the patient's eyelid, and what that does, it actually increases acetylcholine in the synapse, and therefore patients with myasthenia gravis will have an improvement in their ptosis. Because remember, when we're trying to determine, is this Lambert-Eden or myasthenia, um, you want to know, does the weakness worsen with use? Does it worsen over time, or does it get better? That's really what you're going to do on the EMG nerve conduction study. A good friend of mine would say this patient is in an EMG nerve conduction deficient state. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> not too funny, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, Paul is not having it. <laughs> Where's uh, my great friend Stuart when I need him? <laughs> uh, I that's a good question. Um, I it probably has something to do with thinking about iron. He would be ferritin. actively researching the number of copies left of the book that you recommended. The show, <laughs> so he would be no help to you either. <laughs> All right, Paul, take us on. What's the, 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 the final, take us to the home stretch of this case. Actually, no, there's two more, two more pieces. So give them the next, next little bit. All right. This aliquot is a small one. Uh, we're going to give you some additional labs. So additional labs include a TSH, a creatine kinase, B12, SPEP, serum free light change, RPR. And these were all um, negative or not terribly exciting. Uh, a hemoglobin A1C was 8.8%. MRI of the brain was unremarkable or remarkable for not showing anything terribly exciting. And then the chest x-ray suggested a fullness of the left mediastinal silhouette. A follow-up computed tomography of the chest demonstrated a lung mass measuring five by five centimeters adjacent to the esophagus and trachea. Thus ends the reading from Aliquot number three. Okay, so why don't we do this? Maybe I'll just give a general approach to a lung mass and then ask Robbie to see how, how we can link it to the patient's presentation. So... When you're approaching a lung mass, um, and this is maybe a, a tip to all of the, the learners, and I'll give a tip for the faculty too. You can always get by with when someone asks you, what's your DDX? Just say infection, malignancy, or autoimmune. That's the tip for the learner. The tip for the faculty is push the learner. What type of infection? 
What type of cancer? What kind of autoimmune disorder? So we can start with infection, right? Infections that can present as a mass can be cavitary lung lesions, abscesses. But if it's a solid mass, then you can think about a tuberculoma. You can think about histoplasmoma. You can basically take any fungus, and Salma Nemotalai will say you can make it oma. So fungal oma. That's infection. <laughs> Let's go to the autoimmune or inflammatory category. Here, sarcoidosis can present with a mass. But remember, sarcoid should cause bilateral hyaluronic adenopathy. And it's usually um, stage two or three where you get the hyaluronic adenopathy in the mass, but this is asymmetric. So this is not sarcoid. Other rheumatologic conditions that cause lung mass includes granulomatosis polyangitis. GPA can cause a lung mass. Nothing about this presentation is saying GPA. No upper respiratory symptoms, no kidney involvement. So it's not GPA. Um, rheumatoid nodules. Rheumatoid arthritis can cause lung masses, but the patient doesn't have a history of RA. So this is not rheumatoid arthritis. Where we really want to find ourselves is in cancers. And I'll just give a quick general approach to uh, lung mass and cancer and then pass, pass the mic to Robbie to take us home. When you're dealing with lung cancer, you want to break this down into small cell, which accounts for about 15% of lung cancers, and non-small cell, let's say 80 to 85%. Small cell lung cancers tend to be aggressive, present with lymphadenopathy, metastasis, etc. The non-small cell lung cancer, the way I remember this, and I think, Paul, you'll love this, is this memory aid, a sad lung. So a sad lung, ASL, adeno-large squamous cell. Adenocarcinoma is periphery, and that's why it's periphery on the ASL. Sad squamous cell is central, so centrally located, and then large cell is also in the periphery. Adenocarcinoma is the one that all, smoking increases the risk in all comers, but adeno can happen independent of the patient smoking or not. Now, there's other types of lung cancer, like metastasis to the lung, carcinoid, and other stuff. But I would love to hear from my mathematician what type of lung cancer he thinks we're dealing with and how this relates to the patient's um, muscle weakness. Oh, look at this guy. Remember I told you? He just wants to set up people for success. He has ending with, how is this related to a neurological syndrome? Well, I'll tell you that the study of cancer and neuro, again, just like diabetes and neuro is extensive. I mean, the poor neurologists have to learn an antibody every single day at this rate, associating some sort of cancer with another neurological syndrome. <laughs> most of them, most of them are actually in the brain. So like NMDA and encephalitis, et cetera. But there are peripheral uh, consequences. You know, it's funny, the, the muscle and the nerve tend to be spared in terms of the perineoplastic dimension. And if you're studying perineoplastic plus muscle, the hit is dermatomyositis, most commonly in other ones, but here there's no rash and the CK is normal. Um, if you're studying um, perineoplastic and nerve, there are very few hits with the exception of immunotherapy. So when patients get immunotherapy for their cancer, they get all sorts of complications. But cancer plus NMJ is a big hit. I mean, you can make that all caps. The cancer we associate with myasthenia gravis is not so much a cancer. It's a benign mediastinal lesion in the form of a thymoma. The association between lung cancer and NMJ is through Lambert-Eaton syndrome. And that cancer usually is small cell carcinoma, um, which would fit with the profile here. But I'm going to just, I'm going to just summarize where we're at now and then um, uh, take you to as far as I can and ask Reza to reflect in a moment. We have a patient who presented with a, su a subacute weakness syndrome, and we found two key features. 
We found that the patient has proximal muscle weakness, diminished reflexes, ptosis, and bifacial weakness. Those are both features of muscle and nerve, so we're prioritizing muscle and nerve, but also the common denominator of the neuromuscular junction. You find a lesion in the lung, and you, in a patient with smoking history, you worry about cancer. So if you hear cancer plus NMJ, you have to prioritize Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, which is an antibody against a voltage-gated calcium um, channel at the presynaptic membrane. That is a great fit for the following, proximal muscle weakness, areflexia, and sensory symptoms. It's a less good hit for the ptosis. Lambert-Eaton is usually a lower extremity predominant syndrome. So that's where you have to come back to the myasthenia. Could this patient have an incidental lung cancer or a lung mass and have myasthenia along with it? And I don't know. I really don't. I think the EMG is actually pretty good here and will tell you are you dealing with a presynaptic or postsynaptic. If you want to have one full swoop explain everything, I think it's Lambert-Eaton, but the ptosis is plus minus. But you could also go myasthenia and say the lung cancer is incidental, and you or you could be completely wrong. And this patient actually has another uh, neurological syndrome. But I think if <laughs> you're playing diabetes, yeah. polyneuropathy. Yeah, there we go. But I, I, thoughts? What would you add? Where, where's your head at? Right? I have zero to add. And thank you, Dan Minter, for presenting a neurology case to, <laughs> to we, we, we always joke around that like the diagnostic test is like a UA showing pyuria and a urinology showing E. coli. Here we are talking esoteria and the patient had an E. coli UTI. <laughs> but I'd like to, if, if you guys don't mind, I'd like to go back. So the patient reporting the raspy voice, I think we were trying to tie that mm -hmm. in, in terms yeah. of, um, is this a myopathy? Is this a junction issue? Is this, uh, is this a neurologic? Or now going back, now that we know there's a big honking mass there, is it possible this is like recurrent laryngeal nerve involvement and that's why the patient has a raspy voice and that's actually not a red herring, but not related to the, the weakness and the, the everything else of the patient or am I mis misunderstanding the case? I, I think that's spot on, Paul. Thanks for bringing it back to the, the hoarseness and the patient's clinical syndrome. But in general, with hoarseness, you can, you can take an anatomical approach and really localize to the vocal cords. And the most common cause being laryngitis. I'm sure you and Matt have had a hoarse voice after hosting so many of these incredible uh, curbsiders episodes, the internal medicine podcast. Um, <laughs> but people who drink, you know, smoke, all of these can cause a hoarse voice, but you're absolutely right, Paul. And that's a very interesting thought. I would love to know exactly where the lesion is. And I would call down to, radi to the radiologist and say, hey, could this be involving that recurrent laryngeal nerve that's innervating you know, the, the vocal cords there? Paul, you want to bring it home? Sure. I mean, I, we're, not, we're still not even quite home yet. There's still two more aliquots. So this is the EMG. You want it, I will give it to you. This patient underwent EMG and nerve conduction studies that were significant for, one, a reduced amplitude of the compound muscle action potentials, which hopefully has meaning to you, and two, significant and reproducible facilitation following 10 seconds of exercise. Antibodies to MUSK, acetylcholine receptor, and voltage-gated calcium channels were sent. She was scheduled to undergo bronchoscopy with a biopsy of the lung mass. So what, what, what are we to do with the EMG? Um, so, Paul, when you said that the EMG showed decreased amplitude, correct? Of the compound, the muscle action potentials, correct. Wonderful, which, which is what we would expect. And then did it worsen or improve with repetitive stimulation? So it's, I'm assuming, if I'm interpreting this correctly, that the significant and reproducible facilitation sounds to me like it actually got better 
yeah. uh, with exercise, following 10 seconds of exercise. Amazing. Um, so, so then this would be consistent with the presynaptic Lambert-Eden and likely uh, secondary to a small cell lung cancer if we're applying the base rate of disease and what's most common. That would be, I think, Robbie and mine, final di- diagnosis, small cell lung cancer with perineoplastic Lambert-Eden syndrome. All right, let's, let's bring it home. So aliquot number five, your final aliquot, anti-voltage-gated calcium channel levels return positive at greater than 405 picomoles per liter. Reference range is zero to 24, so that is very high. Biopsy of the lung mass revealed findings consistent with small cell lung cancer. Based on the finding of a diffuse presynaptic neuromuscular junction disorder with prominent facilitation, consistent antibodies, and the finding of small cell lung cancer, the patient was diagnosed with Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome. She was started on protostigmine, mestinon, and referred to oncology for chemotherapy. Her symptoms improved somewhat, and she continues to follow up with them for treatment of her small cell lung cancer. So nicely done. Yeah, very, very enjoyable to hear you guys talk through all that stuff, especially since neuro is a topic that I, and I guess I'm told many other internists just feel like- All of them. A little bit, yeah. Feel a little bit inadequate in that area, but hearing you guys talk through it- uh, makes it seem like it is attainable to uh, just practice this a lot and really think through it and learn it. I think the physical exam is something that you'll just have to really practice as well. So guys, what do you think? Uh, let's do the the cognitive autopsy here. Um, I'll start with Robbie. Robbie, what do you think went well? Uh, what could have gone better? Anything that jumped out at you in retrospect? Yeah, you know, I think that um, you asked yourself, like, what is the purpose of the cognitive autopsy? It's both to improve improve your diagnostic acumen, but also to be to be able to arrive there as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And I think that um, in general, that's really, really hard with neurology. So I feel like my cognitive autopsy in real life would be to humbly respect my limitations in the in the interpretation of the neuro exam. Because if you paint out this neuro exam with features of myopathy um, and neuropathy, um, you, you, it's so confusing that you probably move to NMJ disorder. But in real life, I probably would have had a very hard time picking up ptosis, bifacial weakness, right. and little reflexes. Yeah. So I think if I were seeing this patient in real life, I probably would have gone astray. And my real life cognitive... Uh, um, assessment would have been like, listen, a neuro exam is taught to all of us, but there's an expert neuro exam and I would move to that very, very quickly. But when that neuro exam is presented wrapped up in a CPS case, it's a little bit easier to get there. But I, my kind of autopsy in neuro cases is um, be kind to yourself if you're a non-neurologist. Your exam is often very, very different than theirs. And that's because they do it on every single patient. And I get lucky if I get one neuro exam in like one full neuro exam a week. So it's okay that to not perfect the neuro exam, and I often rely on uh, my neuro colleagues to, to do that. My other kind of autopsy is that even though, uh, to be honest, I think I was slightly to very um, nervous jumping in on this stage given the origin story of the CP solvers, it's always such a delight to hang out with my brother. It all really, really always is. It calms my nerves. It calms my nerves to hang out with you all and to um, go through a case. So my cognitive autopsy, again, another part of it is just how much of a joy it is to um, practice medicine with people you love. And I hope that every single person um, gets to do that to, to, to as much of a degree as they can. Yeah. Fanta- fantastic watching you guys work on this. Reza, what about you? Any, any final thoughts on the, on the case here? Yes. Um, first of all, thank, thank you so much for, for having us, Matt. Really, I, I don't know if people know this, but the clinical problem solvers would not exist without the curbsiders, period. So you are the, the reason that we exist. So thank you so much. Um, and I'll say this too, that 
two comments. One is that when it comes to neurology, like falling back on Aaron's equation makes a lot of sense that the neuro DDX is equal to localization times time course. That tempo is not taught to us in medical school or residency, but it's probably the most important factor to arrive at a prioritized DDX. Because remember, we said this, Paul said, look, it's been going on for months, Reza. How could this be Guillain-Barre syndrome? Ba-boom, tempo. We knew it wasn't a stroke. Why? Tempo. And the other thing I'll say is this, Matt. When I was um, teaching in Japan because of, of Gurpreet Dhaliwal, there, they don't have like a separate neuro and IM residency. It's all integrated. Therefore, their residents were able to identify lesions on MRIs of the brain, which just like impressed me so much. But it comes back to the point that I think is the most important point for the audience to take away. There's no reason to have neurophobia. I sucked at neurology. Like literally, like I was afraid. I was a neuroscience major, but I was afraid of anything neuro. <laughs> I, that that's that's just weird, right? But when you practice, and 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 you know, I would follow Aaron Berkowitz. I know I plugged his book, but I want to plug his Twitter account too because he's teaching us neurology in a very methodical and stepwise fashion. And so, with practice, I I learned an approach to foot drop that took me twenty hours to learn. But now I've learned it, and now I can. But if I didn't practice, I wouldn't know it. So it just goes back to what you said, Matt. If the motivation is there, if the need is there, then you'll learn that skill. I wanted to see if you guys wanted to plug anything specific that you're doing at Clinical Problem Solvers uh, that you wanted the audience to check out. So Reza, you can go first. Robbie, you can plug something different if you wanted. So what I'd love to plug is every Saturday, Robbie and the CP Solvers host the entire world in a special VMR for non-English speaking people. And rather than me describe, because I've only been to one or two of them and I've been blown away each time, let me pass the mic to Robbie to actually describe what he's doing. Because I think it's so special about democratizing the teaching of diagnostic reasoning. Yeah. And so, um, Robbie, this John. is a during during the pandemic, you guys brilliantly started doing this live virtual morning report. And uh, so you're talking about an international version. So Robbie, tell us about it. You see folks, you can't help but, but pass the mic. <laughs> it's incredible. So yeah, Matt, uh, we, uh, you know, during the pandemic, we started to do live daily Zoom-based morning report conferences um, where we had many people join us. Um, and that continues to this day for free on Zoom uh, every morning Pacific um, time and um, occasionally some afternoons. But Saturday is very special because, on, you know, we're realizing that the whole goal of clinical reasoning is to democratize these schemas that we just um, laid out in these cases that we did. Um, but there are disparities within within the United States, as we as you reflect on on your show quite frequently, of access to um, to uh, medical school and 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 beyond. But now we're realizing more and more um, that that those disparities exist well outside our country, and so um, we're thinking more and more about how to make contact with, how to connect and educate and work with and learn from um, the global community. So on Saturday. Um, we actually encourage people for whom English is not a first language to come in and nerd out on medicine. And it's just, it's beautiful. You see people from all over the world. Um, on, in one VMR, we had 17 different languages on a one-hour uh, virtual wow. report. I mean, the truth is it's, it's um, people people speaking English, but encouraged to do so because it's a safe environment because English is not their first language. And I cannot tell you how humbling it is to learn about people, their lives, their culture, but also how that intersects with medicine, what diseases they see, how they think about approaching stuff, what medica med medications they use. 
Um, so I highly, highly recommend it. It's for free, and it really is a way of bringing all of us across the world in medicine to nerd out, nerd out about what we just did um, uh, with, uh, with the four of us here for this wonderful hour. I'd also plug, um, I'd also plug uh, checking out Reza's YouTube channel. You'll learn so much about the foot drop video he's talking about. Another CP solvers thing I'd recommend. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're gonna we're gonna uh, link to all this stuff. Thank you so much, guys. We'll we'll do the, we'll we'll head it we'll head to the outro here, guys. Hang out with us for that. Paul, you wanna do yep. the honors? This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. All right, I was I was hoping Reza or Robbie would jump into <laughs> In, interjection. <laughs> All right, Let's Paul, you did it wrong, my friend. All right, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy! Yummy. <laughs> ah, there we go. That's the good stuff. We're gonna do it. We may as well do it right. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com, and while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to Dr. Dan Minter, who wrote this fantastic case for this episode. Thank you to him and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter are on the transcription team, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you are doubtless hearing behind our sweet voices. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. As always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. And I am Dr. Reza Manesh. Thank you and <laughs> goodbye. A little food for your brain hole. 